This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Before we get into the episode with Liam, I just wanted to say... First of all, apologies about my voice. A heavy for season has been hitting me really hard and so I sound hella sick, but I promise you, no COVID and the recording was safe. Um, and also, I just wanted to introduce my key takeaways from the episode because this recording really changed the way that I think about prison and I really encourage you to think about what key stories have you been told about prison growing up and just the context of prison against everything that's happened in history what's happening in our society now and kind of what other forces are shaping um, people's interaction with the prison system Kia ora Liam, welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns, thank you so much for replying to a random email for a random stranger and being open to being here Um, before we get started into the corridor it would be amazing if you could introduce yourself in any way that feels most comfortable to you, so who are you and what people and communities and lands do you belong to? Mm. Please tell us. Uh, kia ora, Amal. Thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, where do I begin? I, I grew up here in uh, Wellington. Um, I went to Newtown School, South Wellington Intermediate, so... Um, I went to this university where we're sitting uh, today, Te Hiringa Waka, as an undergraduate student. Um, and yeah, I went overseas to do my postgraduate study, uh, but now I'm back um, working as a lecturer in criminology here. Um, yeah, so I do, I, I teach and do research on prisons, alternatives to prison, um, and yeah, here I am. Oh, Kiana! Thank you, Liam. Thank That's you. so cool. You must. This is very much a full circle moment. Studying, and then now you're working here as a lecturer. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into the deep corridor, mm. I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. So cool. we've got some quick fire questions. Um, so you're at a party. <laughs> yeah. The DJ plays blank, yeah. and you're on the dance floor. <laughs> what is that song? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny these days to think of myself on the dance floor because I feel a bit old. I've uh, got <laughs> children of my own. Now now and so on um probably something like uh new zealand reggae like fat freddy's or, oh, or catch a fire yes. that I, I i don't need to do any too much radical dance moves i could just kind of Classic you know sway yeah yeah Classic exactly pretty much pretty much i can't embarrass myself too badly yeah um what are you currently unlearning what am i currently unlearning oh you know as a as a white criminologist studying prisons mm-hmm. um, uh, there's a lot of thinking about you know my positionality and when it's mm-hmm. time to speak and when it's time to be quiet um, and you know big stuff like that you learn in waves eh? like uh, you, you learn piece at a time and I'm still fumbling through you know um, so yeah just in the last year I've started teaching a course on colonization and criminal justice in Aotearoa um, and teaching that course has really uh, pushed me to reflect a lot on um, yeah what it means to be a white criminologist studying prisons eh? which is a you know I think at this point 
it's widely known that this is a, a, a disproportionately Maori issue, eh? You know, that it's Maori people incarcerated and so on. So, you know, um, yeah, a lot of thinking and a lot of unlearning um, going on there, you know, recently. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I think, like, for me to hear, because I am a woman of colour, mm. so for me to hear that a Pākehā person is thinking about these things, it's mm. like, oh, this is what our solidarity mm. looks like and this is what being an ally looks like when you think about your positionality, because, yeah. you know, that's how the next, the following he comes after but first thing you have that, that awareness, so that's Definitely. amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Um, last time you had a oh god, I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, as a as a teacher, it's 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 often embarrassing, you know. Uh, it, it, it comes with the territory. Um, I mean, I teach a, I teach two hour classes, you know, uh, and I'm up there in front of a room full of people speaking, you know, and. Sometimes what comes out of my mouth I'm proud of, and sometimes I'm <laughs> utterly embarrassed by it, you know. Um, and, you know, like, yeah, as, as you get to know students over time, you uh, you hear back things that you've done in class, you know, little little mannerisms you have. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I, there's a lot of awkwardness involved in being a teacher. Um, you, you have to lead and bring energy to a lot of conversations, and, and putting yourself out there is all part of it. So... Uh, yeah, I don't think I embarrass easily, but uh, I experience awkwardness and embarrassment pretty regularly. Uh, it's a very human thing. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Very much is. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I love that. Um, what are you grateful for at the moment? Oh, grateful for my children. Um, yeah, I've got three children, uh, age six, four, and one, and uh, they're beautiful. All boys. Oh. Uh, you know, it's tiring, but it's um, it's beautiful. And and every day they 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 laugh with me. They they hug me. They kiss me. They they get me outdoors. We they, they they get naked and swim in the ocean. And they they keep me grounded in like the beautiful parts of life. You know, especially yeah. I'm a criminologist who studies the prison system. It can be bleak. This is a dark area of human existence that I have my mind in a lot of the time, you know, and um, in many ways I think I'm well suited to that, I, I, you know, I, yeah, I, yeah, not to go off on a tangent, but my kids help a lot with that, you know, they, they don't, they don't, you know, yeah, they, they keep me grounded in the, the day-to-day and the, you know, the fresh air and the, the ocean and the laughing with people you love and bodily contact, all that good stuff. Uh, they sound like they make your life so rich and they just three blessings really. <laughs> pretty like, much. Very so tiring special. as well. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> and then last question in the hot seat is if you could be any object or human, what or who would you be and why? If I could be any object or human <laughs> I don't know. I I don't I don't I don't think I spend time well I try to avoid spending time wanting to be things that I'm not. Um, Fair enough. You're like, I'm uh, here and I'm me. <laughs> pretty so, much. I, one and of course, of you know, uh, our, our minds work in that way. But uh, I don't know. I love the ocean. I, you know, I, I live near Lyle Bay Beach and I'm always at the ocean with my kids. And I, and I think a lot about living on an island and, you know, 
what it means to inhabit Aotearoa and and I don't know. So does the ocean count? Absolutely, <laughs> the know? ocean counts. Absolutely. <laughs> the ocean, the the ocean. Yeah, I, my parents took me to the ocean a lot as a child, and now I'm at the ocean a lot with my children, um, and so. And, and I go there when I feel stressed or and it you know I swim and I and I take my shoes off and have my feet in the sand and um, so yeah the ocean's taken on significance for me even more so now with my kids and so on so yeah maybe the ocean that <laughs> Am is I a to solid that? answer absolutely <laughs> I love that. Um, thank you for answering these questions. Mm. I feel like we've got a bit of a sense as to who Liam is. Cool. Um, and uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of like prison mm. reform, I'd love if you could briefly speak to the history of prisons here in Aotearoa. Because actually, while I was thinking of questions for this episode, mm. I was like, where like did we just copy and paste what was happening in like the UK or America? Yeah. Like where did the concept? Well, in many ways, yes, we did. Here? So. Um, what, what's often called the first prison in Aotearoa uh, is, was built not too far from here. Uh, actually, right next to the high school where I went to high school, Wellington High School, um, uh, Mount Cook Jail. It was built in in 1840 or 1841, so we, we can understand. Around the treaty time. Right around the treaty time, right? You know, so. Um, uh, prisons are a colonial institution, a settler colonial institution. They were brought here as part of a, coloni- a process of colonisation. So uh, for hundreds of years, people lived in Aotearoa with no prisons, uh, no police, no criminal justice system that we would think of today, you know, that we take for granted today. Um, and and prisons were brought here. And they were, you know... Uh, Copied and pasted from Britain, as you said, you know, or, or at least that was the the effort. So mm-hmm. Mount Cook Jail was uh, built to be modelled on Pentonville Prison in London. Uh, the architectural plans were um, were modelled on Pentonville, which at that time was supposed to be the pinnacle of prison science, and it was based on what was called the separate system, which was uh, holding people in solitary confinement, mm-hmm. um, completely separate from others, mm-hmm. as a form of rehabilitation. Uh, and it was a brutal system, you know, I think we can understand intuitively uh, today that solitary confinement is going to be damaging. Um, but uh, the idea of the separate system was that it gave people chance to uh, engage in penitence, penitentiary penitence, you know, reflect on their crimes and so on. Right. Um, so they built uh, uh, Mount Cook Jail at the top of Mount Cook. It was known as, I mean, it's it's all deeply embroiled in colonizing processes, you know, uh, Mount Cook, it's named after the OG colonizer, you know, James mm-hmm. Cook, right? Uh, the hill itself was uh, it's stolen land. Uh, Pukiahu was what it was called before. They renamed it Mount Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the name it still has today. It was on a hill overlooking the city. Sometimes they say it's the first public building built in the city of Wellington, our capital city, uh, awesome. before the hospital, before a school, uh, and, and the position in the city was overlooking the city, so everyone can see, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of a new power form yeah. here, you know, and it, right next to a military barracks too, you know, so it's military, criminal justice together and so on. Um, 
So the story of prisons in Aotearoa is a story of colonize, colonization, you know. Essentially, yeah. Just, um, absolutely. Um, so then from that first prison, how did we get to where we are now? I don't know how many prisons there are now. Nine, ten? Uh, there's like 20 prisons oh, in, in oh, New Zealand. Um, but how, how did that then that growth happen? Was the idea, was that that first one, oh, this I, idea, this model is successful, so we've got to build more around the country? Or <laughs> Well, you know, there's a lot of history between then and now, and, and, and I'm just trying to think of what's the best way to, to answer your question. Like, I think we can see continuities from that prison through to now in terms of um, the way that we still continue today to uh, to model our justice system on what's happening in Britain often, um, or what's happening in the US, even worse. Um, um, so I think, yeah, if we're asking how do we get to where we are today, where we have a big prison system with thousands of people incarcerated, 20 prisons around the country and so on, um, I think that that system is a symptom of our ongoing our ongoing colonial relationships with places like Britain and, and increasingly the US. Um, and, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. No, no, but no, no, you're on the right track. I just, yeah, I'm just curious as to how, just how we really got here because it seems like prisons are everywhere and it's just, mm. you know, they're so normalised in the sense that like even for myself before I really got deep into this topic like yeah. the first bias that kept coming up now I'd love to share it with you was well then how else do we keep Definitely. people accountable how yeah. else do we like I just in yeah. my head prison and the Absolutely. word and the concept of justice were just yeah. so intertwined yeah, definitely. it was really hard for me to like unpick that relationship yeah I hope maybe if you could define how you see justice mm. that would be really well, interesting well, if I can just steer a little bit um, the so I think what you're getting at there is the way that we take prisons for granted and I mm. think this is where um, history becomes crucial for us um, and that prisons are a relatively new invention and we need to remember that for most of the history of Aotearoa for hundreds of years mm -hmm. people lived here with no prisons you know yeah. uh, so you know again the first prison on this land around 1840-1841 um, so you know what's that like 170 years ago you know a little bit more um, and but most of history, there were no prisons here, so we can we can think, well, how did they do it? You know, yeah. the other part of it is is the feeling that we have that we just struggle to imagine what a world without prisons would be like, right? Absolutely. Um, and and one thing I notice, I see this with my children. So I notice my children are already talking about jail and prison, even drawing jails and prisons. Um, so I've started, uh, you know. Uh, like, um, it was a couple of years ago now, my oldest, he turned five, and um, he was leaving, like, kindy and going to school, and, and one of his, with one of his friends, they exchanged pictures. Yeah. Um, and he came and showed me the card that he was going to give to his friend, um, and, and he'd drawn a prison in it. Um, and, and so I take these opportunities to ask, you know... Um, how they come to understand what prisons are all about because he's five yeah that's you know? so incredibly and, and, um, and so as we talked about it it, it, was, it was linked to a book we had been reading which has an image of a prison in it um, right. and so it's really got me thinking about representations of prisons and children's stories 
also toys uh, for my son's sixth birthday. He was given a, a Lego set called mm-hmm. City Adventures. It's a um, it's a it was a militarized police vehicle with a jail on the back. Um, it's a Lego set, um, and there's there's the police and there's two baddies. Um, and he's immediately starting to put the baddie inside the prison cell and so on. Um, and so, you know, I asked lots of questions as he was playing, you know. But, you know, they, they have prisons in their brains at, like, Bobby, who's my middle child, he's just turned four. Um, he's already talking about prison and jail, you know. Um, so when we think, we have unlearning to do. If, if we want we to do. imagine a world without prisons or... or uh, where prison is a much more marginal feature of our social landscape, we have to grapple with deeply ingrained images and representations that we build up from the youngest of ages, you know, before we're even conscious of, of you know, before we can think critically, before we can, you know, uh, yeah. So if we're trying to think about, you know, yeah, why is it difficult to imagine a world without prisons and so on? I think there's a lot of... We, we need to reflect on, on, on where particularly, you know, I think it's particularly important for kids like my children who they don't see prison. Mm. You know, they don't, they don't go to a prison. Prison is not part of their world, you know. Prison is, is a fundamentally unequal institution. It's, it's unequally distributed throughout the society. So in some parts of the society, no one goes to prison. And, and prison's not really part of the direct experience. In other neighbourhoods and communities, direct impact, you know, normalised experience mm. for people growing up and so on. Um, so for those of us who inhabit parts of the society where we're distant from the real prison, what a prison really is and does, um, these these like mediated representations, you know, through children from through children's stories, right up through to uh, you know police ten seven, um, you know cops on TV, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, all these you know cultural representations of prisons was just flood us, you know, and, and, and fill our brains with prisons. <laughs> yeah. You're so right. Even just when you're talking about what your children have said and done, I'm just getting flashbacks to primary school and would play, like, cops and robbers. Yeah, definitely. And put people in definitely. prison. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, I was actually so mean. Like, we just put kids in the quarter and they wouldn't be allowed yeah. to move. Yeah. They'd have to stay there for the whole, like, lunchtime or, or whenever it was decided that the police or the cops would let them free yeah um but yeah yeah you're so right we get introduced to it at such a a young age and how can you interrogate a story that you've been told your whole life definitely without kind of approaching that conversation with that critical thinking but also that empathy and that curiosity as well um i know that there will be people tuning in and then kind of thinking well actually how are our prisons failing our mm. community right now yeah yeah um uh i i think one thing that i that comes to my mind as you say how are prisons failing our community i think we need to think about different communities basically you know mm-hmm. prison's working fine for some of us who who aren't the ones in there you know and and who aren't the ones who 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 are being directly, brutally impacted by these spaces, you know. Um, 
you know, oh, okay, well, maybe it's it's expensive, so taxpayer dollars, but that's different, you know. So um, we need to think about, um, yeah, differential impacts, because eh? I, I think in the way that we think about prisons, we always just have to come bring our minds back to the unequalness of them, you know, and the 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 fundamental um, uh, linkages between. Uh, deeply entrenched patterns of social inequality, racial mm-hmm. inequality, settler colonialism and and the prison, you know, and and how that um, it shapes everything about them, you know, but it, fundamentally it means that some of us just aren't exposed to them. But like when I teach a class on prisons here, most students in the class have never seen a prison before, you know, that uh, they've never physically seen one, you know. Um, there, there's always some people in the class who have direct, um, brutal experience of what mm-hmm. a prison is all about, usually through incarceration of a family member, mm-hmm. um, visiting and so on, you know, uh, uh, or sometimes personal experience too, of th- themselves. Um, but, so yeah, if we're thinking about how do prisons fail, um, uh, we need to keep that in mind. Just in general, prisons, are, they just don't work. You know, they, they, we want them to do what they can't, you know. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I can, I can dive in. I, I could dive into, like, you know, talking this through. But I actually, do, I think most people kind of understand already that they don't work. I, I don't even find it hard to convince, like, punitive people, you know, News Talk ZB people, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, talkback radio people that prisons don't work, you know, that they cluster together, you know, already um, harmed people and, and degrading environments and often lead to further offending after release and so on. Like, the, these I think we can understand if we just take time to, to think it through. Um, uh, yeah, but... Prisons fail, you know. Uh, there's no doubt about that. They just sound harmful. Yeah. And sounds like they don't even work as well, creating further harm or le- allowing that harm to continue, and then, but also not doing what it was meant to do as well. It just seems like a double negative. Mm. Um, oh my goodness, my brain is going in so many mm. different directions right now. You're giving me so much food for thought. I suppose. It's not just also the fact of going to prison as well. It's the harm that comes from after, Definitely. like life after prison as well. Definitely. And the your book that you just recently mm. um, published, mm. even though it was based in America, you kind yeah. of were researching how people re-entered into yeah, society yeah. Um, after prison. And mm. I was just wondering if you could speak to those harms as well and how they how they continue even after like post prison life. Sure. Um, I think uh, where to begin, I, I'll just say the US I think is a useful case for us to think about here in Aotearoa because um, America has experimented with with a unprecedented, um, you know, what does it look like to incarcerate millions of people, you know? Mm. It, like here in Aotearoa at our absolute peak, we were still around 11,000 people incarcerated, you know, which is like on American scale, minuscule. There, millions of people, millions more under correctional supervision, parole, probation, and so on. Um, you know, and, and again, heavily concentrated. So we're talking about some communities where everyone goes to prison, you know. Um, has that made the US a safe place to live? 
you know, you know if, if, if prisons worked, then the US would be the safest country on earth. It's it's the it's the opposite. It's America incarcerates more of its population than any other country on earth, um, and it's also the most violent industrialized society on earth. It's um, you know usually the places that are where people are most likely to harm one another violently are poor poor societies. You know where people don't have the kind of life stability to 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 maintain healthy relationships the u.s is a complete outlier you know and so a prison's made us safe then the u.s would be a safe place and it's not so i think it's just worth saying that um my my work there uh i did my phd in the u.s mm-hmm. um i spent time living in a halfway house a man leaving prison and jail um and uh, over a period of years developed a network of relationships with men in the house um, I lived there for nine months altogether, spread over three separate stays, um, and particularly developed a long-term relationship with one dude there. I, I call him Joe in the in the book. It's a pseudonym, but um, but in terms of the lessons I would take away from that is one is human beings are amazing, and that um, like Joe's story is a story of amazing transformation mm-hmm. under the most crushing structural. Uh, you know, he is in the right in the heart of the system of mass incarceration you know Puerto Rican dude uh, grew up with his dad as a drug dealer in and out of prison his whole life you know incarcerated in an adult prison for the first time at 17 Um, a very violent person too Uh, um, you know both uh, you know carried a gun and and, you know was a violent man Um, Mm -hmm. also brutally victimised himself over a long period of time I met him when he was 42 years old Mm-hmm. Um, and in the time I watched, I, I, I was spending with him with the years. It was just um, amazing to watch his his change and his. He's an inspiring person, uh, uh, you know, articulate storyteller, you know, um, uh, you know, calm, ability to stay calm under mm-hmm. the most crushing circumstances. Uh, so I learned a lot from. Uh, I just I've, I feel uncomfortable using his. His name is Mike. To use, uh, uh, to, I, I feel inspired by Mike. You know, mm-hmm. and and that it's never too late. You know, um, that again I met him. He was forty two years old, and he was damn near dead. Uh, his body had been destroyed. You know, it's a long story, but um, he was in a halfway house and trying to get his life back together and at the time I, I, I watched him you know so now he runs an addiction recovery drop-in centre mm-hmm. um, in the neighbourhood where he grew up and so on um, uh, he's been clean and sober for years um, and, and and an inspiring person so like even for my own life he's a good lesson to me that like it's never too late to change you, you know you can become a fundamentally different person at 42 uh, um so that that would be one one lesson. I you know I could I could go on, but maybe I'll just pause there. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Mike sounds like a really special mm. special demon. When you reflect on his journey, because it sounds like you got to know him quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think like really made the difference for him? Was it the sense of community? Mm. Was there an opportunity for him to to heal? Or yeah. you know what what do you think were the key factors? Um, in his like turnaround because it sounds like he really just turned turned his life around. Um, Mike was was um, more or less disabled in that um, he 
he contracted an epidural cyst on his spine while he was in jail, um, and he basically got left for dead in the in the local jail in the city that he was in. He was um, he asked for medical assistance for his back, um, as and and they they interpreted it as him trying to get narcotics medication in the jail. Right. Um, so basically abandoned him, um, and, and to the point where he couldn't move his legs um, and ended up having to have a surgery where they cut out a chunk of his spine he had a he had a uh, a cyst on his spine and had to have some of it removed basically so when I met him he was like learning to walk again um, and there was an element of um, it was it was change or die you know yeah he, he actually after the surgery ended up homeless um, in a wheelchair um, and 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 learned that that life which he had been able to make work at some level for a long period of time mm-hmm. was no longer doable uh, yeah. so there was an urgency to his change yeah. um, the halfway house itself um, was I think a crucial intervention for him mm-hmm. um, where I, that's where I met him was mm-hmm. this halfway house a stable housing you know yeah. Yeah, housing housing is everything you know and without housing how do you um, how do you do anything else you know it's how, true. How, do you live? how do you receive letters how do you you know like how do you access medical care you know uh, keep a point you know there's a stability of life that comes with housing, you know, and and this particular halfway house allowed him to live there for years. Uh, so he, and and you know, I mean, in the book, I'm ex- I'm examining that the, the the contradictions and the complexities of of a halfway house, which saved his life at some level, mm-hmm. um, but is also part of the system of mass incarceration itself. You know, uh, interesting drug, conflict, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's. It's a it's a site of carceral control. It's closely connected to the jail and prison system. Um, he was stuck there. You know, in some ways, it was a life-saving intervention that he could live there for years. But um, but uh, at, at another level, he was stuck there. You know, there was there was no public housing. You know, but it's, it's so symptomatic of, of America that there, there there's no he, he couldn't get a, a, an actual house. You know, uh, you know, he couldn't get public housing. He was on a wait list for public housing for years, and yet there was a halfway house. You know, a carceral space. You know, this is the system of mass incarceration just sucks up resources that could be spent on, um, you know, public housing um, or, or uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, other kind of welfare interventions. Mm. You know, so it's it's a it's a complex. It's a complex intervention, but on the whole, you know, if we're trying to think about like how did Mike turn it around, that that house was critical. It was everything. I, I, I think he would probably be dead if it wasn't for it. You know, um, yeah. What I'm picking up, and please correct me if I'm wrong, no. from what you just yeah. said, was that maybe the way that prisons are set up, they don't actually acknowledge those those the real. The, the bigger things that are surrounding it, which Definitely. actually might explain why people are in the position that they're in, things yeah. like colonization Definitely. and you know our welfare state. Like yeah. we don't, we've got a really large homeless community. Yeah. How do we 
talk about things like generational harm mm-hmm. and it seems like this the prison system's kind of like this big system that just comes in forces itself to make space but actually Definitely. doesn't make space for the other things that if we were to address those things maybe there would be less people to put absolutely absolutely mm. yeah uh, um yeah, it, it literally crowds out those other things because prisons are very expensive, you know, that they, they, um, yeah, I mean, there's a whole literature in the US case around the way that um, prisons and jails have become the front lines of the US welfare system, mm. you know, where, um, where that's people are accessing healthcare through prisons, you know, people are accessing schooling through prisons, people are accessing, you know, pr- yeah so and and that's where the resources have gone you know prisons as a site of housing you know um and and i met met, i I met you know i interviewed lots of people who told me that um prisons like they were crucial interventions for them you know uh that that they were able to access support in prison which they couldn't find anywhere else you know and and uh and and i think that's that uh, th- those same people would just tell me how horrible these places were. Uh, to me, it's an indictment of what else there is. It's not. A, it wasn't a celebration of prison. It's an indictment of like what life outside was. You know. Exactly. Like, and it, I think it highlights a major failing of you know people aren't getting those things outside of prison. Definitely. And to get those things through prison just seems so strange to me. Definitely. Um, when because you do interviews and mm. you're quite vocal about your opinions and I'm just wondering what are the common like I hate to call it counter arguments no. yeah. but like what are the uh, opposing views I suppose that people you, you commonly see like I mean maybe this isn't one that comes up for you but mm. when I talk about I was just talking yeah, talking about um, when I think about prisons and I'm trying to actively interrogate my bias, one thing that comes to my mind is that because of the way that we've been taught to think about prisons and stuff, there's very much this idea of if you are not in prison, you are a good person. And if you are in prison, you are a a bad person. It's this question of morality. And then... So one thing that I really had to grapple with was, Mm. well, if people are out here doing really bad things like mm. what like, what do you do in that position mm. when there's just straight up people who just do bad things but I mean yeah. I'm not saying it makes them a bad person no, no, I yeah, yeah I'd love to hear like, <laughs> what common opposing views that well you I think what were you getting at an important one there which is around this goodies and baddies division yeah. and I tell you that's, that's, that is the that is how my children understand you know goodies baddies and, uh, like goodies and baddies comes up in children's play a lot uh, and, and all kinds of things superheroes and so on but <clears throat> it's really important to prisons because prisons is inside and out it's that you know what you're saying mm. baddies, uh, baddies in goodies out you know yeah. uh, and if they're in they must be bad and uh, you know and by extension if we're out we're the good ones you know um, so it, there's a distancing there like it's not me you know it's it, I'm doing the right thing right? so you know I don't need to worry about that um, I'll tell you one of the, the key findings of criminology is that uh, so victims and offenders it gets ma- mapped onto that eh? mm-hmm. so uh, you know victims as innocent and, and, and good and offenders as as, uh, as harming and dangerous and so on in, in, in the cold hard world 
that we inhabit, those two groups are deeply intertwined, that those who, who are most likely to harm others are the most likely to have themselves been harmed. You know, mm-hmm. when, we, when, we, when we look at the stories of, of those who, who are in prison, you know, and, 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 and have often harmed others in quite serious ways, um, they just have brutal stories of their own. You know, these these things don't come from nowhere. You know, people, you know, I think, yeah, some people want to believe that there's just like evil people out there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm trained as a sociologist. I believe that uh, people are, are, are formed and molded by their social environment over time. And so when somebody, um, you know, is, is running out of control and harming people around them. It's usually the people directly around them, the ones they love, their children, their partners, you know. So it's usually men, usually young men, you know. Um, and, and, like, just invariably, you know. I, I, I see it, yeah. So I think, um, uh, you know, when you're talking about the counter-arguments, you know, I, I think that the goodies and bad, it, it, it just... It, it shapes so much of the public debate, I think, mm-hmm. um, that there's a kind of sim- simplified notion of, like, if we're going to have a meaningful conversation about prisons and prison reform, uh, this whole conversation exists in a world of grey areas. Yeah. It's complicated, you know, yeah. morally, politically, ethically blurred, you know. This is not like studying astronomy or, or plant biology where there's certain universal laws and so on Mm -hmm. shit is complicated you know and anyone who tries to tell you that there's a simple answer is misleading you you know Uh, so beware of those who come with simple answers Mm -hmm. you know Um, but uh, you know then I think the other the other part which I think you were getting at there as well is like people want to know what else then you know okay I don't find it hard to convince people prisons are a bad idea yeah uh, but that's where the conversation gets hard because then, okay, well, what else? What do you propose? You know, like, so what, what are we going to do then? You know, and, and like, that's a big complicated story, you know, and, and like, for me, it's fundamentally about uh, building a different kind of society, you know, yeah. in which we don't need prisons. You know, we're talking about big social transformations, you know. We're talking about building a society in which people have uh, affordable housing to live in, meaningful work to do, you know, uh, uh, education systems that that don't exclude young people, you know, uh, uh, mental and physical health care systems. You know, we don't have basic support for people with mental health crisis, you know. Um, So, but but, uh, this is the hardest sell, you know, or how do we, how do we get there, you know. That's where the conversation becomes harder. Sometimes I find it feels like I'm changing the subject. Now we're not talking about prisons anymore. We're talking about something else, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is, that is, yeah, you're so right because you're asking, because we're fundamentally, if we were to move away from prisons, we fundamentally have to change how we think yep. justice. We have to think about yep human rights we have to think about community we have to think about our social responsibility to each other Um, and I think those things right now we're we're told this is how it looks like but I think when you're thinking about the unknown and thinking about well what is the alternative that that must be really really hard Um, I'd love to have your understanding of how Mm. you see the words like community and 
social responsibility because yeah. when I was doing research for the questions for this episode mm. one thing that just kept coming up time and time again was yeah. you know once you go to prison you've lost privileges you've lost mm. your human rights it's this idea of that you've actually lost your your ability to to participate in society and, yeah. and one particular way that kept coming up was when I was doing some research into you know how prisoners actually can't vote at the moment mm. um, and so yeah when I was thinking about oh well, what is the other option I mean I actually instead of thinking about prisons I was thinking about these bigger concepts of social responsibility and I, I'd love to know how you um, think about those words as someone who is deeply like entrenched in this space well, I mean I think uh, uh, one of the defining characteristics of a prison is its individualizing way of doing things, right? And and this is like goes back to the colonial origins, the separate system at Mount Cook Jail, built not far from here, our first prison. You know, uh, the idea of prison is to separate people from their social relationships and isolate them as punishment. You know, um, th- th- this is a. Uh, I mean, compared to like indigenous justice systems, you know, Maori justice processes that prevailed here before, real collectivist notion of responsibility for harm, you know, mm. when one person harmed another, there was a real sense that that's a breakdown in relationships that goes beyond that person. It would never make, and so in the response there's, and that philosophy informs the response where it's like, um, there's a response which aims to repair and restore relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, a prison does the opposite. It, 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 um, it isolates an individual. You know, it's an individual who goes to court. An individual who stands in the dock by themselves. It's the individual who gets the criminal record and so on. And it's the individual who's in the cell. You know, so there's a it, prisons are built on a philosophy of individual responsibility. You know, and and so those words you're using around community and like thinking, you know, I'm always trying to trying to frame the discussion of prisons around social and historical context. You know, what are the systemic inequalities shaping what's happening and so on. Um, um, and, you know, how do we think socially about the change? You know, I think when some people think about change, they they they, they want to think about okay, how are we going to fix those people? You know, who mm-hmm. end, who go to prison? You know, how are we going to rehabilitate them? You know, um, and and you know those words you're using about you know social impact, social responsibility, community. Um, those are words that encourage us to to think about. Um, yeah, the broader context and the kind of broader changes that would need to happen if we're going to meaningfully address what's going on. Absolutely. Uh, um, I think for this prison reform process to happen, like as collectively as a country, we have we all have to be involved in this conversation. Mm. And what would be in your toolkit of, hey, here are the things that you need to unlearn here are the things that you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable about because like Mm. I know that there will be people out there who think well you know because we've spoken in in our time together we've spoken a lot about how there is a direct relationship between colonization Mm. and how our prison system is set up now Um, but you know there will still be people who boil it down to such a simple problem of this is a matter of justice and yeah. you need to be punished but yeah, for us to, to talk about prison reform what do you think we all need to be comfortable 
talking about and what we need to be unlearning and what we need to be prioritising in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff we've talked about around like goodies and baddies and, and and breaking down that kind of like thinking, you know, accepting that this is a, a, a part of social life, you know, why do people harm each other and, and how do we respond when people do, mm-hmm. you know, that is, um, it's just, it's complex, you know, and, and it's, it's not mathematical, it's not like two plus two equals four, it's, you know, so we have to have a discussion which is nuanced and, and, and we have to um, be okay to, to, um, to think in those kind of complex ways. And, you know, so I think part of it is, yeah, like breaking down that, that thinking, you know, I think the, the larger thing is around, okay, if we're going to say that we need a social transformation, a broad social transformation, what does that actually look like, you know? Mm. Like to me, so much of this is about, you know, yeah, if we want to live in a place that's actually safe, you know, uh, like prisons are not going to make us safe, you know, that that's a myth. And, and it's a it's a comforting myth, you know, the idea that we can just lock away the dangerous people and we'll be safe. Is, it, it, it's intuitively appealing, you know. It just doesn't operate like that. So, so what do we actually need to do? And to me, it's so much about prevention, you know. Um, yeah. it, it's, it, it's how do we how do we you know how do we build social relationships that that are foster healthy ways of being in the world you know that 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 don't foster situations where people feel the need to resort to violence and and again it's always harming the people around them usually the people they love the most and so on um but like it's easy to kind of say that but what is what does it actually look like to do that because i like the national party will talk talk or the act party they'll talk about prevention as well early intervention you know Mm -hmm. what they mean when they say early intervention is completely different to what i'm you know now they're talking about like orang oranga tamariki removing children from their families and so on you know uh uh you know early forms of of criminal justice surveillance of children and so Mm -hmm. on you know um that's not what i mean so you know at some point it becomes tricky conversations about you know if we're going to have a big social transformation what does it involve and so on and who needs to be part of the conversation which is everyone but just and how do you translate that into real life as well right because if you think about our current picture we have we do have prisons right now. Yep. There are parole offices. Yeah. There are. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Not. I've never been to a prison mm. before, so I'm not too sure what the exact realities mm. are. But mm. to shift it from our reality to the corridor that we're having now, I think is well worth it. But the challenges that will come with that will be really, really big. Um, Absolutely. And so that kind of leads me to my final question: mm. is if tomorrow you had the power to make a permanent change. Mm. And it could be a cultural one, it could be a physical one, it could be a systemic one, yeah. um, that you had the power to make one permanent change mm. um, for a more inclusive and empathetic Aotearoa. Um, what would you do? <laughs> That's a big question. Um, like, as a simple one, I always think about housing. So, you know, um, if we haven't got houses for people, then... then uh, so so much else is going to flow from that day, eh? but but generally I, I you know I'm trained as a sociologist. I try to think uh, 
you know, structurally and socially, you know, what, what kind of big picture change. So I'm always on the lookout for where are the conversations happening about big system change, you know, how do you build a different kind of society? And I think, like, the, the really interesting work that Moana Jackson was doing in the final years of his life, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the Mataki Mai project around constitutional transformation mm-hmm. and how do we build a, a political parliamentary system rooted in tetiriti, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and we're talking about radically transforming our system of politics, you know? Um, and and that, that is an immense change, you know? Uh, and, and I think the, the trajectory of Moana Jackson through life, going from criminal justice, you know, and, and um, you know, and then later in life, constitutional transformation, you know, you know, the original proposal back in 1988, here Whaipanga Ho, a parallel Māori justice system, um, you know, later became, how do we build an entirely new political system, you know, that you can't actually, those, those, Smaller reforms are difficult without systemic change, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, and there's, yeah, that work of imagining what, what a different kind of politics looks like and so on, it's immense. And it's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a battle against our imagination sometimes, you know, our, our, our deeply ingrained patterns of thinking about things and so on. But um, I think there's really interesting um, conversations going on around Mataki Mai still that overlap a lot with, um, with, with conversations about prison reform and particularly prison abolition, um, mm-hmm. which increasingly, you know, discourses of prison abolition are prevalent here, you know. Um, there's a, um, a law lecturer at Auckland University, Dylan Asafo, who's, who's written and, and, um, and talking a lot about the intersections of constitutional transformation and prison abolition. Um, and, and, you know, in, in a kind of common sense way, decolonize, if we think of prisons as a settler colonial institution brought here through colonisation and, and the way that Māori justice processes that operated here for hundreds of years with no prisons... You know, to decolonize, you can see there's an intuitive linkaging of of, of uh, removing our reliance on prisons and decolonization. You know, um, and yeah, the kind of conversation around constitutional transformation, I think, is is a really important one for us to engage in as people interested in prison reform. Absolutely, it makes it makes sense that you've brought up that point because you know once you kind of all these systems are linked with each other. Nothing really Definitely. works in isolation. And yeah. so to have that over, overall change, it would impact not just our prisons, but our healthcare and, and everything else. And yeah, you're so right. We've never really operated in a way where it honours titiriti and to honour titiriti and actively decolonise and, and move away from that. Well, colonisation, I think, would be... So healing, mm. so healing. Um, but we just have to be brave enough to have those conversations. Mm. Um, one final, final question: Do you yeah. know if those conversations are happening, like right now in real time, um, with you know, with the police or with you know, the people who actually execute um, our prison system? Is uh, that something that's in talks or? Uh, like, 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 what would that look like to you? Oh gosh. 
Well, I mean, like, uh, talk, talks about treaty partnership and, and how the criminal justice system does treaty partnership are everywhere. You know, um, you know, our, our Department of Corrections, we have, for the first time, a Māori Minister of Corrections, Calvin Davis, who, in opposition, was a vocal critic of the prison system and is leading uh, a strategy called Hōkairangi within the Department of Corrections, um, which has a discourse of... of uh, turning the Department of Corrections more or less into a Kaupapa Māori-led organisation and so on, you know. Any of your listeners who want to check it out, go and read Hōkairangi. You know, um, it's just available freely online. You can just Google it and look at it. As a document, um, the discourse, it's it's all about, you know, ending Māori over-representation in prison and so on. You know, but is anything, you know, is that changing anything? You know, the questions become, uh, you know... Is this just putting a new front on a prison? Mm-hmm. A prison is a prison is a prison, you know. Uh, and like to me, the idea that a prison will ever be a kaupapa Māori space is absurd, you know. That because it's an individualising place, you know, a cell, you know. If it's going to be a kaupapa Māori space, it's no longer a prison to me, you know. And I'm not. This is not my original idea. There's. Like so, we have a recurring conversation about Māori-led prisons that mm-hmm. come up, you know, um, and and um, and like you know, there's Māori uh, scholars will come out and say uh, the idea of a Māori prison is an oxymoron, you know that that oh, those two you can't have that, you know, a prison is not a Māori institution and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, but that I wouldn't. That's not to say that there's nothing important about Hōkairangi either. I, I think it would be unthinkable that that strategy existed 30 years ago. I, I think it's a symptom of how much further along, in some ways, things are. Um, and there's all, you know, there's a, uh, yeah, there's other forms of like partnering agreements that are being formed by the justice system and various forms of Maori political authority um, that are increasingly central to what's happening. Mm-hmm. But you know, some of it is just. PR, you know. I understand. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of drilling down into like what, you know. Yeah. I'm sceptical of so much of it, but I also, I always want to be someone who's not just like poo-pooing what's going on and, and uh, you know, so it's like I want to look for what's what's helpful that, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah. you can still have these thoughts and be sceptical because that's how we hold systems accountable, right? Yeah. But also at the same time acknowledging that this is, a step in the yeah. journey and mm. a step is still big progress yeah. even if it is just a step and I think there's space for both of those to happen yeah. um, but you know from my point of view it's I didn't even know that this was like I didn't know about those reports mm. actually and so it's kind of mind-blowing to me that the, you know the corridor like has started and there's it's translating <coughs> into some kind of movement whether it's the full movement that we need who knows but it's translating to some kind of movement so thank you thank you for sharing that and thank My you for, for this this whole episode you've given me so much proof and thought it's been just so mind-blowing thank you Liam my pleasure thanks for having me <laughs> Thank you for tuning in into another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.